Good morning, church. Just uh, glad you're here this morning. A joy to worship God with you. You know, before we jump into the message and talk about those words you just heard, I just want to share with you uh, a letter that was addressed uh, by someone that's kind of new to the congregation, addressed to the congregation of New Life Church. You know, one of the blessings as, as pastor and staff is because through the week we work more closely with a lot of people, we, we sometimes get the joy of seeing the impact and hearing, I guess, uh, the impact um, that your service and your generosity has in the lives of other people. And maybe off, uh, too often we don't actually share that with you guys, but um, this is just a little letter uh, addressed to the congregation of New Life Church. That's you. So it's from a young mom in the church. She just says, um, My daughter and I are so thankful for the kindness, thoughtfulness, and generosity that was shown to us last week. You know, when you give, one of the things your giving does is it, um, it contributes towards uh, providing for some of the financial needs of people that find themselves in pretty bad shape and need a little bit of support, need a little bit of help. And um, so this person received some of that. This week I was able to afford medications that I usually have a hard time affording, among other things like groceries, gas, bills, etc. I truly believe that the Lord provides at all times, and I thank Him for leading me to a beautiful congregation, kind pastors, and people with generous hearts. I look forward to my fellowship with a new life. Thank you once again from the bottom of my heart. So thank you, church. You're making a difference in all sorts of ways. Keep it up. So let me ask you a question. What is 62% oxygen, 21% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen, 2% phosphorus, 0.8% chlorine, 0.6% iron, 0.2% potassium, 0.2% sulfur, and 0.1% sodium? Huh? Us. You! That's you are, give or take a little bit of sodium. Some of you, you need to cut back on the sodium, right? <laughs> it follows the doctor's orders, less salt. That's you. That is the chemical composition of a human being. That's you. Is that all you are? What does it mean to be you? Who are you? What, what is a human being, anyway? You know, that's a really important question. It's a fundamental question. It's a question that a lot of people are asking, and some people um, provide answers. Some people can't find answers. What does it mean to be human? As technology advances, you know, this, this question is becoming a little bit more pressing. Like, they're talking about a future where the, the, the lines between human and machine maybe get blurred a little bit. Elon Musk said this last week, I read that, he predicted um, year 2040, which is not far away from now, that uh, he predicts there will be uh, one billion humanoid robots on the earth. And predicted in 2060, some of you will still be around for that, uh, should the Lord tarry, 10 billion humanoid robots. Maybe. So what does it mean to be human? So a chemist might answer that question like we just did. Well, a human is, is a being made up of these different elements. A biologist might want to offer an answer kind of talking about genetic code and how you're just a few small genes away from being a pig, right? You've heard that before? You're like 99.8% pig. 
those 0.2% are very important. And it's that that makes us human. So they might, a biologist might talk about kind of our genetic makeup. A psychologist might try to answer that question by talking about the cognitive abilities of the human mind. Uh, maybe the superior intelligence uh, of, of human life versus other life. Um, and some people might say, well, you know, we only just think we're special because we're, we're us, right? If we were a fish, we'd think fish were the most special one. And, and we're at the top of the food chain. And if we weren't here, chimpanzees, they would think there was something special about them. They would be the smartest ones. A sociologist might answer the question about what does it mean to be human by just describing a set of behaviors. Is there more to it than that? What does it mean to be human? And, and that is really among the most important questions that we can ask. Genesis 1, the words we just read, begins to give us an answer to that question, begins to show us that, you know what, there is something more to being human than the chemist and the geneticist and the sociologist and the psychologist can describe. There is a deeper meaning to humanness. So last week, we, we looked at this whole chapter, Genesis 1, as we've been going through these first 11 chapters of Genesis and uh, last week, we, we, we saw how this one chapter kind of shouts, it declares four essential truths about creation. And if you were here last week, you, you know, we just noted that we bring all sorts of interesting questions to Genesis 1, you know, when did God make, what was the creative process God used to make, and what we said is, those are important questions, the Bible may give us some insight into that, but the primary question here is not when and how, but it's who and why. And so last week, we, we, we saw that in Genesis 1, it, it declares that God created everything out of nothing. God is the source of all. You can't really talk or think about anything without referencing back to God. Secondly, Genesis 1 declares that God made everything intentionally and purposefully. Everything has reason behind it. It is not random. You are not random. Thirdly, we, we found that Genesis 1 shows us that God's creation is good. He made it good. And the fourth thing we deferred to this Sunday, which is this. Genesis 1 shouts at us that God created humankind uniquely. Humans are like nothing else. They are unique in God's creation. And this account makes that clear. It shows us the way God creating man is described here, that we are the culmination. We are the crown of God's creation. We are special. We are unique. Everything else God made, He said, let there be, let there be, let there be light, let there be sea, let there be sky, let there be sun and moon. But when He comes to the creation of mankind, He says, let us make... He describes it differently. Only twice did God use the word create in the rest of the chapter, but here in this one verse, verse chapter 1, verse 27, three times He says created. God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them, and it's just a way of showing us that we are the culmination of God's creative work. It never says that He breathed life his breath into any of the other creatures. But in chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth and breathed 
into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God put his breath in him. That's unique to us. We're going to talk about what that means. What does it mean to have the breath of God? And then he uses an interesting word to describe who we are. We are that part of God's creation that is created in His image. And this is the word or likeness used interchangeably that we find again and again. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in His image. That's a really important word. And as we look at that word, we're going to start to understand what makes you, you. This is what we're going to see over this week and actually next, because we're going to answer this question over two Sundays. And this is what we're going to see, that bearing God's image gives us a unique worth and a unique work. Bearing God's image gives us a unique worth. We'll look at that this Sunday, and unique work. We'll look at that next Sunday. So what does it mean to bear God's image, to be made in His likeness? Well, let's just think about what what is an image? What sort of things um, bear an image? We can think of a few things. We can maybe think of a mirror, right? If a mirror is is held in a certain relationship to an object or to a person, it actually reflects back the image of that one. So a mirror reflects an image, bears an image. We might say that like a child reflects an image of a parent. And in fact, just a chapter or two later, that's how it describes um, children and parents. It says in chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, all the same words, and he named him Seth, right? So there's a way in which a child is in the image, bears the image of its parent. So that's one picture. And and then a third one would be a work of art. The Bible uses that word image to represent like a figurine, like a statue, an idol, a piece of art that represents another. All of these different things, as we look at them, are going to help us understand what it means for you and I to bear the image of God. And really, we're just going to look at those first two today, and we'll look at that last one next week. So a mirror. When you hold a mirror in a certain, in a right relationship at the right angle, um, to another, it reflects the image of somebody. And, and so I think what, what God wants us to see here when it says that we are made in His image is that we, you, everybody you know, everyone that's ever been made, is made to have communion with God, okay? We are made to share God's communion. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting the way that it describes God's making of mankind, like I said a moment ago, it's a unique way of framing that. He said, not let there be man. He said, let us make mankind in our image. Who's the us and who's the our? Like, God, aren't you the only one? You might expect him to say, let me make in my image. He says, let us make in our image. And that's a little perplexing. And so some people have tried to answer that um, quandary in different ways. And some have thought, well, maybe God there is using what they call the royal we. Just the way like King Charles III, we used to kind of saying that, not Queen Elizabeth II, might say, we have decided, which is just really a way of saying, I've decided, but I've decided for you. You know, I speak on everybody's behalf because I'm king. So maybe this is like the royal we, that was a thing. Um, or, or maybe God is referencing like other angelic beings as like a heavenly court 
And he's saying to the other angelic beings he's created, uh, hey, let's make mankind in our image. But nowhere else does it kind of describe other angelic beings as participating in that creative process. Some, even, even early on in the history of the church, have seen here something else. They've seen a glimpse, a hint of the triune nature of God. As God continues to reveal more and more of Himself in the Scripture and in, and in His Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, we begin to understand that though God is one, one God, one essence, one nature, yet within God there is communion. There is relationship within God. We call this Trinity, that God is triune, one God, one essence, one nature, but, but yet in some mysterious way that you and I cannot diagram on a whiteboard, just like I can't diagram how, how, how a line has no beginning, I, I can, I can, how, how can you draw a line that has no beginning? I can't. God, as He shows Himself to be, is one God, but within God there is communion. There is relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so some have seen here a glimpse of this reality that God Himself is communion. And so some have actually defined God as God is being in communion, being in relationship. And so maybe what we have here is this, this allusion to the fact that God has made us to share in that communion with Him. And, and, and I think that's certainly a part of what it means to be made in God's image. You were made to fellowship with God. Your dog can't do that. My dog, Cooper, I love him. Sometimes. But he sent me to the hospital a few weeks back. He bit my hand. See that right there? And, and, and what did I do when, he, when he, he got this little cut? What did I do? I passed out. Yeah. I, I, literally, <laughs> I literally passed out on my bed. I do not have a high pain threshold. Okay? Very low threshold. So, my dog does what dogs do. What dogs do, what no other create, not what a rhinoceros or, or um, a, a bison or a bird, or fit, what they don't do is they cannot conceive of God. They cannot worship. They cannot wonder. They don't have transcendent thoughts of kind of, 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 a, of a bigger meaning for their life. They can't do that. You can God has placed His Spirit within you. And so back in Genesis 2, when it talks about how God formed from the earth mankind and breathed His Spirit. You see, animals, yeah, they can have emotion and personality, but they don't have soul. They don't have the capacity to actually know and fellowship God and to behold His glory. But you do. And so does every other person that you know. We were made to have communion, to have fellowship, with God. That is our unique purpose, to know and enjoy Him. And so you see, as the story continues, you see God and mankind actually in communication. What is communication? It's communing, right? You see them in relationship with one another. In fact, the Westminster Catechism, written a few hundred years ago, begins by asking the question, what is the chief end of mankind? What is the purpose of humanity, and it answers the question this way, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you were made. If you're wondering why, 
Like, like is it to just, you know, see the most places on, on planet Earth, to accumulate the most wealth, right? To, 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 to build the most beautiful things, to indulge the most pleasures? Why do you exist? You exist as a human being to know and enjoy God eternally. That's the answer, to glorify and enjoy God forever. And so Augustine, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he famously said, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. People are trying to find meaning all over the place, right? And purpose. Purpose can only be found in understanding that as a human being, God has made us with a special capacity to know Him, to enjoy Him, and, to, and ultimately to, to dwell with Him forever. Blaise Pascal, famous French philosopher, he said, there is an abyss within man that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, which is to say only by God Himself. Now, there's a lot of people going around this world, they have no idea that's why they exist. They don't know that that's their purpose. They're trying to find it, but that's it. To know and enjoy God, to behold His glory. And see, you can behold glory in the way, again, my dog can't do. Like my dog, when I say, Cooper! The northern lights come to the window. Isn't it amazing? He doesn't think so. He doesn't care. He just wants a treat. He just wants something to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, animals, they do, not, they do not sightsee. They do not find glory in the sky or in different landscapes or in music. They were not made for that. They were not made for wonder. Augustine also said, man wonders at the sun, man wonders at the star, man wonders at the sea when all along man is the wonder. The wonder is that we were made for wonder. And so David will say in Psalm 139, maybe words that you know well, Psalm 139 13 and verse 13 and 14, David talking to God, he says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You, human, are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made to know God and to know Him, and enjoy Him forever. And so a theologian, last name Westerman, he said, human beings are created in such a way that their very existence is intended to be their relationship with God. And it's a very sad thing that so many human beings go around unaware that this is their purpose. They feel the void, they try to fill it, they try to fill it in different ways. Their very existence is intended to be their relationship with God. So in other words, true humanness is found in relationship with God what it means to be human. So what does it mean to bear God's image? Well, well, firstly, it, it, it certainly means that we are made to share communion with God. First and foremost, we are worshipers. It also means, I think, that, that we are made to share God's moral character, to share God's character. Uh, like I said a few minutes ago, an image can refer to a child right, like his or her parent, 
um, and a child, when they come into the world, looks something like their parent, but, but the idea is that they will grow to become more and more, maybe in the, in the way they look, in the way they think, in the way they act, like their parent. They will bear their parent's likeness. It's the reason I'm balding. Thanks a lot, mom and dad. How are we made in God's likeness? Is it because we have two arms and we have two legs and two eyes? And if you were to see a picture of God, it's like, oh, yeah. So we, he's just, he's just a great human, and we look in our bodies like Him. Well, the Bible is clear that God is not body. The New Testament tells us God is spirit, and God is not male or female, right? He created them in His image, male and female. Each of us in our maleness and our femaleness, together we share uh, we bear God's image, and, and there's some ways in which even the way God has designed us in these categories of male and female, there's a uniqueness, maybe some unique ways or attributes of God that we might reflect. But God does not have arms or legs. He does not have boy parts as opposed to girl parts. So what it means to be made in God's likeness, what does it mean? Well, it means, I think, that we were created to reflect His character, that God is a moral being, right? And what God is, He is fully, absolutely, perfectly, perfect love, perfect faithfulness, mercy, kindness. We are made to share in God's qualities and those characters. And so Jesus would say in Matthew 5, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and he uses the language of parenthood and childhood. In a few verses earlier, he says, you are child, be, be children of your heavenly Father. Not like the people of the world who just love their own. Pagans love their own people. There's nothing, there's nothing special about loving your own tribe, loving your own kids. Be like your Father in heaven. Love your enemies. Love all people. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is something my dog, Cooper, my, my, my dog can actually, I don't think he can do good or evil. He just does what he was created to do. You know, when God made the animals there, at, we, we began after that part of the reading, he, he did give them a command. He said, go and increase and fill the earth. And so that's what they do. Bunny rabbits and dogs, they live their life to increase and fill the earth. Not to do good or evil, they're not moral beings, but God has made us differently. He has breathed into us soul. And He has given us, I think, kind of a, a, a unique command if you continue in Genesis chapter 2, right? It says that God put them in this garden and all these beautiful trees, and He says, all, all of this is for you to enjoy. You can enjoy the fruit of these trees. But there's that one tree you're not to eat of. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. If you eat of that, you will die. In other words, He is the standard of, of what is right and wrong, right? It's a way of saying, don't be like the animals who just follow their impulses. I created you, or pursuing your own pleasures, or whatever. I created you to reflect my moral character. And so He gives them a command, and it's a way of saying, you have the capacity to choose. You have moral freedom in a way that no other creature does because you were made to share my character. 
Now, maybe we haven't done a great job of that. In fact, we haven't. The first people didn't either, right? They did what they ought not to have done. Instead of doing good, they had done evil, and they sinned. And the Bible says all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that's the reality, that we have all fallen short of that. We have not reflected the moral character of God as we ought to, and in that sense, we have all experienced a a separation from a holy God, a, a spiritual death, and this is the state in which we find ourselves almost like a mirror that's kind of been broken. It still reflects, but it's kind of fractured. God came to the prophet Ezekiel and he gave him a vision. We find it in Ezekiel 37. He gives Ezekiel a vision of this this valley that's full of dry human skeletons. It's actually a bit of an eerie scene, okay? Um, It would give your kids nightmares if this was like in the the kid's Bible book, right? There's There's this valley full of dry bones, dead human skeletons that have been that have been dead for a long time. And God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says of these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put my breath in you. And here we have a picture of like a recreation. At the beginning, God puts His breath, which isn't just like oxygen that fills our lungs, rhinos and bisons, they all got that too. It's soul. It's His capacity to fellowship with God and to reflect His moral character. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. And it's this, and it's this prophecy of, of what God intends to do, which we believe, as the Scriptures show, is actually something that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Son of God who comes into the earth to reconcile sinners to God, to restore in us the image that got corrupted. And so he came, and in one sense, Jesus is the most fully human human. Because if if, if if, if, if to be human is to enjoy fellowship with God and to reflect his moral character, then he's more human than you are or I am. Because he, he has done that fully and perfectly. He is truly, fully human, and he came so that we might be more and more and more human to bring us back into that state, right? And so Paul will talk over and over again in these terms about how he has brought us into the family of God through faith and what he has done for us, bearing our sin on the cross. And the Bible says that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. God causes His Spirit to dwell within us. We are born again by the Spirit of God. It is as God putting His breath back into us and like children who are born, more and more becoming and growing to be like the likeness of their father, of their parent. And this is the picture of the work of Jesus Christ in all who trust in Him. So Romans chapter 8, we see Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined, some big words there, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's all just a way of saying Jesus came, right, to lead us into a renewed 
a, a conforming of ourselves, again, into this image for which we were created. He'll say in Colossians chapter 3, his instruction to the church, Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, stop acting like animals. Stop acting like animals that just follow their impulses, that do what seems best to them in the moment. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, you know, before you became, before you put your faith in Christ, before you were made new and God breathed His Spirit into you, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So he talks about this process of becoming holier, you know, like more loving, more kind, more generous, more merciful, more patient, more selfless. It's a way of actually being renewed in the image of God. Because to bear God's image means to we were made to reflect, to share in God's moral character. So this is... This is who you are. Isn't it good to know? This is who you are. You were made. You were made to fellowship with God. And you were made in your own life to reflect, to share in His moral character. That's why you exist. And that unique purpose, because no other creature has that purpose, that unique purpose gives you as a human being and every other human being you know a unique worth. So in the last few minutes here, if that's the case, if that's in part what it means to bear God's image, what does that actually mean? What are some of the implications of that in how we live? And I just want to suggest four things. The first is this, that before you are anything else, you are a worshiper, okay? Your relationship with God is primary. You are not first and foremost, you're not a mechanic, you're not a mother or a father or an athlete, doctor, teacher, Before you are anything else, you are a worshiper of God, an enjoyer of God, a lover of God and loved by Him. That's primary. And if that's true, that will impact the way you live, right? That'll, that'll impact what you do. That'll impact what you give your time to. If, 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 that, if that's the core of who you are, your relationship with God as a worshiper, then He will be the source of all things in your life. Jesus would say when He was asked, what is the most important thing, teacher? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, because that's, you're human. That's why you're here. You're a human being. You're not a human doing. You're not measured by, by the things you do, the work you do. You are a human being, not a human doing. The second thing, it would mean that all life is precious, equally precious, and all life has equal dignity. There are not degrees of value to human beings. There are not degrees of worth to human beings. There is not one person on planet Earth that's more valuable than you. There's not one person on this Earth that's, that's less valuable than you. There's not one person on this Earth that God loves more than you. 
There's not one person on this earth that God loves less than you. Now, that's, that's kind of the claim of, of the Bible. Um, that, that's what we see here in Genesis 1, right? That we all have this kind of unique, almost infinite worth that God assigns to us as those made in His image. But that, that's a radical idea. Like, maybe that doesn't strike you as all that novel. That's a radical idea. And when this was given, you know, when this was first put on paper, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago, that was a radical idea. And you know, it really still is today. In the ancient Near East, where the Israelites lived, when they first received this, um, I mean, other nations, they had people that were made in God's image too. They were called kings. Not you, not a farmer, not a peasant, not a carpenter. Kings were made in God's image. Important people. And they would sacrifice many, 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 many of the small people for the, for the king who was made in God's image. That was how people thought. There was this hierarchy of value, hierarchy of dignity that was assigned to people. Some were near the top, some were at the bottom. Some were precious, some were expendable. This is the whole idea in reincarnation too, which many, you know, hundreds of millions of people in this world still believe in. And it's even kind of an increasing idea for some reason within our own society with a lot of new age thinking, this idea of kind of you know, living a good life and living, you know, in your next life kind of elevating or if you live a bad life, karma kind of going down. It's like, you know, if I don't do good this time, next time I'm the dog and then after that I'm the moth and then I'm, I don't know, a plant that gets eaten by the moth. But if I do good, then next time I come back and, and, I'm, and I'm a smarter person, I'm a wealthier person. And it's this whole idea that, that there's this just hierarchy of value and dignity assigned to all people. And, and the Bible says, absolutely not. Every single person is made in God's image. Every single person is uniquely precious and has equal dignity because every single person has a sacred purpose. It's not because just you and yourself are special. It's because the God who made you for His purpose is really special. It's the fact that you have a sacred purpose that makes you really uniquely valuable. Because your purpose, you have the capacity, as well as every person you know, to know God, to love God, to enjoy God, to be loved by Him. So C.S. Lewis would say, your neighbor is the holiest object that's ever been presented to your senses. That's how we're supposed to go through life. Like every person you meet is a sacred object. Even the people you don't like. Even the people that annoy you. Even the people that wrong you. So Paul would say in Colossians 3.11, this is actually the next verse after the one we just looked at when it said that we are being renewed, uh, renewed in, in the knowledge of the image of our Creator. Then he goes on to say, here, what's the here? I think he's talking about the church right here. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And he just lists all these people that in the socioeconomic strata of, of the day, you know, people slotted into different places. And he says, not here, not here. Not those that really have been renewed in the image of their creator, who know what that means, who know what it means to be human. There is not slave nor free, male nor female, right? Jew nor Gentile. All are one. For Christ came for all. 
so this is the church is supposed to embody this idea that that all of us are equally precious, equally worthy of dignity. There's no place for racism. There's no place for sexism. There's no place for tribal thinking, preferring my people over other people. And this was a huge attraction to the church. One of the reasons the church grew so powerfully and quickly in those first years wasn't because it had access to privilege. It didn't. It was beat down. They tried to snuff it out over and over and over and over again. It's because they lived differently. They really understood what it meant to be human. And so those that society treated as expendable were valued within the body of of the church. The slaves, right? The lowly, the elderly, the sick, all were shown equal care. God does not discriminate. He does not show favoritism. There is no place for superiority. If so, if it's, if it's true that we are all made in God's image, then there is no place for superiority. We must treat all people as if they are fearfully and wonderfully made because they are. We wouldn't just seek to align ourselves with those of high standing, but we would seek out those of low standing. You know, those of you that are in school, right, you would... You would maybe look to those that are bullied, those that are ill-treated, and you might go and you might give dignity and you might show care and you might show worth. The third thing that um, this should show us is that we're supposed to show a special care to the most vulnerable in society. Um, I listen to this podcast. It's called The Rest is History. These two British historians. It's kind of interesting. But one of them, his name is Tom Holland. And recently he, 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 uh, he wrote a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he's not even a Christian himself. But he, came to, he was a student of history. And uh, he was fascinated by the Greeks and Romans. He thought they had it together, all these you know, philosophers and, and, and classical writings. And he really admired the, the Greeks and the Romans, so he, he, he devoted his life as a historian to study them. But he found himself being gro- kind of um, growingly troubled by what he, what he read about the way they thought and the way they lived. And he, and he found that, that there was this kind of this underlying cruelty that, that, that flowed from this idea that different people had different worths. And so in Sparta, when a child was born, that child was brought to the council and if that child had any deformities, if there's any evidence that that child would probably not be a healthy, productive citizen in their society, that child was brought out into the wilderness and left for the wolves. In the Vikings, before Christianity came to Scandinavia, when you got old and you, when you were now a burden on your community, you ceased to be useful, you were expected to walk to the edge of the cliff and then to take one more step. That's, that's what they did. In Iceland, in fact, we actually have the letter when, 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 uh, when the Viking king of Iceland converted to the Christian faith, he made a pronouncement that no longer will we leave our unwanted children in the snow. Christianity was radically different. This idea that every human being is worthy of love and care and dignity And if that doesn't sound radical to the people around us, it just shows us how much they have been shaped unknowingly by Genesis 1. 
human rights come from here. This is where they come from. They don't come from survival of the fittest, evolutionary processes. They come from Genesis 1, that all humans are precious. And so James 1, 27 says, true religion is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. So if, if we actually, if we lived, you know, if we lived out this image and we saw it in others, what would that look like? It, it would mean that we would, we, we would look for people that were vulnerable, that were unseen, unappreciated, ill-treated, and we would go and we would provide special care. That's what that would look like. We would care for the unborn, we would care for the elderly and the sick and the addict and the throwaways and the troubled people and the ones with mental health issues, the ones that weren't quite as intelligent, the ones that weren't quite as good looking. Christian teaching is to affirm and protect even the weakest form of life. And that's why Paul says when he describes the church as a body, each one of us is a part that contributes to the common good. He said, we give special honor to the parts that are unseen. There's some parts, maybe like a, a pastor or someone that gets up here and talks, talks a little too long if we're going to be honest, on Sundays, and, you know, and people recognize that and maybe, maybe they appreciate that and maybe they say that, but, but there's all these other people maybe behind the scenes doing, contributing no recognition, no appreciation. He says that the church is a place not where we just like, like lavish praise on, on those that, the, you know, that, that, that appear to, that are seen, that are easily recognized, but, but we seek out and we look for the unseen and we give special honor in those places. That's what it's like in the body of Christ. We show special care to the weakest, to the most vulnerable, to the unseen. Fourthly, if we bear God's image, if you bear God's image, then you must value and respect yourself. You must love yourself. Do you love yourself? Like, I, I, guess, I guess it's possible to love yourself too much. There's no room for superiority if this is true, but there's also no room for inferiority. To think you are lesser than, unworthy of, I think that there's many people that their problem isn't so much thinking too much of themselves, but too little of themselves, if they're going to be honest, right? You bear the image of God. How cool is that? You bear the image of God. God made you to enjoy Him. God made you to know Him eternally. God loved you so much that He sent His Son Jesus into the world to bring you out of your sin, to, to reconcile and to renew you so that you can live with Him forever. You. Let nobody say they don't matter. So what this means is, is, you know, if we bear God's image, you need to love yourself. You need to value yourself. You need to respect yourself. Which means you have to believe that, that you have something to give. That when you help, you, you need to reach out because you are worthy of help. You bear the image of God. Timothy Keller said, regardless of the self-assessment of our own hearts or the evaluation of others, there is a rock-hard, objective, irreducible glory and significant to every human being, even the most broken one. And some of you, you got brokenness. Some of you, you're messed up. But someone once said that human beings are like castles. Even in ruin, 
They are magnificent. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. So while the doctrine of sin that we're all sinners, it should be enough to humble every person. There's no place for pride. The doctrine of the image of God should be enough to convince any person of his or her own infinite worth. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, uh, Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia series, where a character says, You come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that's both honor enough to lift up the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. If we all bear God's image, then there's this great equality amongst us that guards us from superiority and against inferiority. And so at the end of our service in a few minutes, we're going to say what we always say, and we often focus on the, two, the first two loves and we forget the third love because there's a third love here that up until recently I'd never ever seen. You know what we say, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, wh- why have we only ever seen two loves there too often? Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You bear the image of God. You are wonderfully made. So this unique purpose gives us a unique worth as humans. We are made to share communion with God and we are made to share His character. And as I was kind of thinking about this message and how we end now with communion, that this is very appropriate. And and it seems like often when we just have, when we come to this table on the last Sunday of every month, it seems to fit with what God is, I think, bringing us uh, to in His, in His Word. Um, and man, this, this is communion. This is the word, communion. This is what this represents. Okay, so let this not be lost on us, this act, right? What this all about is all about is the fact that through Jesus Christ, His body which was broken on the cross and His blood which is shed on the cross for our sin, this is all about bringing us into communion with God. Through Jesus, we, we have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus if we have repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And there might be some of you here this morning, like, are you a Christian? Have you done that? Have, have you, are you reconciled to God? Are you living as if your purpose is to commune with Him? You, you might be here like, I don't know that I've ever actually put my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know that I've ever repented of my sins and received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I don't know that I'm reconciled to God. I know I'm a sinner. I don't know I'm reconciled. What what I would say to you is you can be reconciled to God. All it takes is the repentance of your sin and putting your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And if you want someone just to take, take a couple of moments today with you to pray with you, to help you to take that step, receive that reconciliation, uh, please talk with, talk with me. We have a prayer team after the service that's available. Go there and talk with someone and uh, renew that communion with God today. But that's something we celebrate as we come to this table here now, um, this sacred purpose that God has given to us, fellowship with Him. Um, but as we take it, it it's, it's also, I think, a way what I want us to do is, is to renew in it our love for ourselves. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. For God so loved you that He gave His Son. This is an act, not just of your love and faith in God, this is an act of God's love for you. Receive it. 
receive His love, be be renewed in that belief that you are loved, that you are of infinite worth and precious in His sight. Some of you, that's what you need to be renewed in as you take this. And and then the other thing we need to do is this this table will remind us um, of our need to just love one another well, to recognize the image of God in each other. You know, the, the words that I'm going to read in a moment that we always read at this table from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, you know, Paul writes those in the context of a church that was in conflict, or a church that at least was not, where people were not treating others as if they bore God's image, right? So he said, hey, some of you, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You need to properly discern the body, which is to say the church body, which is Christ's body, because some of you, you're wealthy, you're masters, you come at noon, you're drinking, you're drinking too much, you're getting drunk, you ate all the food. Now the slaves and the servants, it's eight o'clock in the evening, they got off shift, they come to join the church service and it's all gone and there you are drunk without any regard for them. He says, that ought not to be so. We eat from one loaf, we have one Lord, one faith, one spirit, we bear one image. And so this, the very act of this, to do this together as a church, is a way of, of us saying that we, we will love one another. We will recognize the image of God in the way that we treat one another. And so as we come to this, I'll, I'll invite the worship team up and, and those that are helping at the table. Here's the question that maybe you can ponder and reflect on as the bread is being passed and as you go from here back to your homes, this question, how can you bear God's image well? And how can you recognize it in others? How has God been speaking to you in this last, how long has it been? 50 minutes? Has it been that long? Man, time flies when you're having fun, hey? How has God been speaking to you? How can you bear God's image well and recognize it in others? Ponder that, pray over that, and as you receive this bread here in a moment, take time in your heart just to worship God. That's why He made you, just to glorify Him and thank Him for what He has done in giving us life and now in giving us spiritual life through His Son. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have given us life. Lord, you made us, you created us. We're not here by chance. You have a purpose for us. And Lord, you desire that each one of us knows you, knows your love, loves you in return, that our hearts are kind of thrilled with your glory, the glory we see in creation and the glory we see in the cross, what Jesus has done for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us to bring us to you. Thank you for the peace and the reconciliation with you, the fellowship with you that we can have through your son, a fellowship that we don't just enjoy today and tomorrow until we take our last breath on this earth, but, but, but a fellowship we can enjoy forever and ever and ever. We thank you, God, for the gift of eternal life and the knowledge that we can dwell with you forever. Help us to live in this life as worshipers. In your son's name we pray, amen.